Hello everyone, I'm Jacob Kaufman. And I'm Richard Bimmer. And welcome to episode 23 of Rolling Release, our podcast about the perpetual improvement of Linux. How you doing this week, Richard? Doing well. I got back from an open source conference yesterday. I learned a lot, so. Yeah, Kind of cool. interested in this week's news. Yeah, what was that conference you went to? Open was... Source 101. Nice. It was in nice. North Carolina in the Raleigh area. Awesome. Uh, well, yeah, we've had some big releases in the past few weeks, some big updates to some projects, so we are going to jump right in here. And the first story we're covering this week is Plasma 5.12.0 came out last week. It was released, and it's got some pretty nice updates. It was pretty noticeable when I updated to it. So the first thing we want to talk about is starting. The Plasma desktop is significantly faster. I I noticed it was a little bit faster. My machine's already pretty fast. Richard, do you have 5.12 already yet? I do not believe so. Okay. I have, I've been keeping up to date, but I'm pretty sure Ubuntu has not released it. Are you on Neon or are you on Kubuntu? Um, Kubuntu. Okay, so yeah, you'll have to wait a little bit. Uh, you should get it in April with the next version of Ubuntu. But yeah, um, starting the Plasma desktop is a little bit faster, and they've added some new features. If you're on Wayland, you've got a night color feature, which is basically like Redshift or Flux or whatever you want to call it, where it tints your screen yellow. Um, when it gets late at night to help your eyes not be as strained. Um, text in notifications is now selectable. That is going to be useful because notifications... Personally, I'm not a fan of notifications, but not being able to click on them or do anything with them, they used to be pretty static. Now you can at least like copy links out of them and stuff. Um, and a couple weeks ago, they added that feature where you could drag images out of them. So notifications are getting a little bit more useful. The clock widget's text is now sized... They say more appropriately. Um, it was one of the first things I noticed when I updated to 5.12 was they just made the font on the clock just a little bit smaller. Um, personally, I didn't really have a problem with the font size before. I guess the new one looks nice as well, though. Yeah, I can tell from the screenshot that it looks a little, to me, it looks a little better than my current one. Yeah. Mine, it seems a little large now <laughs> looking at it, but yeah, it's not really a thing I noticed prior to them talking about resizing it, so it clearly wasn't that big of a deal, but I do think it looks better. Right. Screenshot at least. Um, so yeah, the system monitor now has per process graphs for the CPU usage. I can show this to the audience right here. You can see I've got these little lines at the bottom of my CPU um, percentages here in system monitor. I'm not sure how I feel about this one. I don't think it looks great. Um, and personally, whenever I want to see CPU usage, I just go over to the full graph anyway. But uh, that's there. It's interesting if you want that visual representation in addition to the percentage. Um, yeah, it's nice to have a little more information, I guess, but I don't see myself using it a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, I've got the system monitor open pretty much all the time, so it's nice that they're showing it some development effort. Um, window shadows, all right, this one was interesting. Window shadows are now horizontally centered and larger by default. Um, so Richard, you're still on the old version. Do you notice that your window shadows are off-center to begin with? I don't know if I actually have that setting enabled. Okay, I mean, window shadows were already on by default. Like exactly. It's just a little, when you've got a window highlighted or even other windows that aren't highlighted, they've all just got a little bit of a shadow around them so that you can see the separations between different windows. Now, it's, it's funny, they made the shadows larger by default. I did not notice that. I was using 5.12 for like a week. Um, and then when I read this change log, then I noticed that the shadows got bigger, but I didn't actually notice before that. Now that I read it, though... It's like, wow, these shadows are huge. So that's interesting. Okay, I can see, I can see that a little right now. I've yeah. never actually noticed them prior to this, so I guess that's why they decided to make them bigger, but... Yeah. Because um, they weren't really that noticeable. 
Right. Yeah, I I don't know. That now that I see that they're I bigger, I kinda dark, wanna I have go and make dark, them smaller. Um, fast, I have a dark background, so because of that they're like okay. fairly similar looking. I notice them better when I have two windows stacked on top of each other yeah. rather than when I have like just one window over my desktop. Right, and that's what they're for is to provide some separation. Um the kickoff application menu now has an optimized layout. I'm not sure what they did with kickoff, but I do notice that I can fit more apps um, in my favorites list without filling the whole thing up now. So, yeah, they must have made some fonts or some white space smaller to do that. It looks nice. Um, they've been working on Discover, that package manager we all love. Browsing views are now more compact, uh, allowing you to see more apps at once. That's nice to hear. Um, and then they've also had, quote, major improvements in stability, I would hope so, as well as in Snap and Flatpak support. So that's coming along if you're on one of those distros like Kubuntu that uses Discover. Um, they've made some other Wayland updates. You can now set your screen resolution when you're using Wayland. I didn't realize you couldn't do that before, but cool that you can do it now. You can also set your screen rotation, and there's automatic touchscreen calibration on Wayland, among many other things. Um, you no longer need to have xWayland to run the Plasma desktop. You still need it for a lot of KDE applications, but Plasma itself, you can now run just straight Wayland, uh, which is neat. Let's see here what else. We've got the notification system. All right, so that's everything new in 5.12. Um, improvements since the last LTS release, which was 5.8, um, include that feature I talked about earlier where notification system now has screenshots and things you can click and drag out of notifications and into other applications like chat applications, email applications. They have implemented switching between Windows and the task manager using the meta plus number shortcuts, which was a feature from Ubuntu's Unity um, that a lot of people wanted after Unity kind of ended. They've been working on their global menu bar. All right, this is funny. So we talked about last episode how GNOME was trying to get rid of title bars so that applications can have more integrated control over their their menus. KDE says right here, KDE's pioneering feature to separate the menu bar from the application window um, allows for a new user interface paradigm. So GNOME's going one direction and KDE's just going directly the other direction uh, by by managing the menu more with the desktop environment. But if you want to save a little bit of space um, and implement that, this is one way that um, you can have the same effect as GNOME's client-side decorations thing. You, know, you can have all the space-saving benefits and everything. You can also have some consistency by having it go through the desktop environment. Um, so there's a screenshot of that there in the article. Like we talked about in a previous episode, uh, KDE's folder view is now the default desktop layout in Plasma rather than the widget-only view that we had for a while with Plasma. Um, they added music and media controls to the lock screen, and we've got a new system settings interface we covered in a previous episode. Plasma Vault, I don't know if we covered that in a previous episode, but it's just like a built-in encryption feature where you can make these locked vaults to put personal files in. And those are all the new features um, since 5.8. If you're using anything previous to 5.8, you should really just update and see everything that you've been missing. But yeah, 5.12 is a long-term support release, which means that they will be supporting it in the next Ubuntu long-term support release, which is coming up in April. Um, so yeah, that is a lot of new features. Richard, anything else you wanted to say about that or any other questions? Um, not really. It looks pretty right. cool. I'm kind of looking forward to actually getting them. I might see if I can just try and get them early. Yeah. But yeah, one Kate, thing... 
Go ahead. I was actually kind of curious because they mentioned KDE Connect okay. at the bottom, and I think that was like the features that have been around a while, and I was curious if you'd use that at all. Oh. As an iPhone user, I can't really use KDE Connect, I don't believe, because yeah. I don't think it'll actually allow it to send notifications through the phone. To yeah, there's no, uh, there's no iPhone app for KDE Connect. I have used KDE Connect quite a bit. Um, it's interesting. I used to use an app called AirDroid to connect from my computer to my phones, my Android devices. Um, and then when KDE Connect came out, I stopped using AirDroid, started using KDE Connect instead because it's open source and free and everything. Um, it's not as good as AirDroid was. My, my biggest problem with it, it's got a great feature set, uh, but it's a little bit slow on the network file browsing. So like, I'm not sure if it'll show up on camera here. I'm going to try and just connect. So I don't have my phone plugged into my computer right now. It's sitting across the room actually, but it shows up under devices. It says one plus I'll click on it. All right. And see, I get an error. It just says internal error. Please send a full bug report to bugs.kde.org. No such object path. Um, so the network file sharing, even when it does work, it's very slow and it crashes often in my experience. And I know in, in at least some other people's experience, obviously it must work for the developers or else it wouldn't be published. But the notifications work great. Every time my phone gets a notification, it shows up on my desktop. That I do find useful uh, for when I get text messages or things. And you can actually even respond to the text messages through the desktop. So yeah, I'm just kind of hoping that they make the file transfers and file browsing a little bit more stable. Um, other than that, I do enjoy KDE Connect, though. Okay, yeah, as an iPhone user who can't really use it with... Right, I mean, you don't even have a file system with an iPhone, really. So. Yeah, not a yeah. user browsable one. Because iPhone, you can't even really access the root file system at all, or right. even anything, really. They added a files app, but it's basically really... It just like gives you access to like Dropbox and your yeah. iCloud. Um, well, yeah, that's Plasma 5.12. Uh, KDE has been putting out blog posts, like weekly blog posts about usability and design. Um, and they've really been focusing on a lot of the small things, like that clock font and, um, like they said, the layout and the, the kickoff launcher. So I'll link the blog that's been doing those blog posts as well, because those have been interesting to read every week, just all the little small polished things they're putting on. Next, though... Other desktop environments are good too. Richard, you want to talk about a new feature in Mate? Yes. So um, this is a pretty short article. It's a pretty short thing in general. So I thought we might just have more of a discussion about it. Yeah. But um, basically Mate is introducing quarter window tiling, which is where you can, instead of just dragging it to the right or left and it doing a left split or right split with the window, mm -hmm. you can actually drag it to the corners and it'll allow you to split four windows at once on your screen. Right. And um, I feel like you probably might have a little more say about this than me because for me, I've only ever had to use this a couple times. Yeah. Um, a couple of times I was doing like, I wanted to have three or four terminals open at once and mm -hmm. I was like one to compile. And then I actually did like, I had Vim in one terminal on the far left of the screen and then the right of the screen was just split two ways between like make and um, something else that I was just using in terminal, I can't remember. Yeah. But basically... I found it useful for that, and that was kind of a just a, a simpler way of using Tmux because at the time I didn't know how to use Tmux well. But I found it useful for that, but not really many other situations, mainly because all my systems are 1920 by 1080, and to split something four ways on 1920 by 1080 is pretty small. Yeah. So it's nice that they're implementing this feature, I think, but even in KDE, I rarely use it myself. So it's cool to see them do it. I'm yeah. hoping there'll be an option to almost disable it because 
I'd like to disable mine in KDE. Eventually yeah, there's already more annoying than useful. Yeah, there's already an option in Mate to disable half tiling. Um, so if anything, you'll be able to disable tiling altogether. Hopefully, it would be a separate option though for the quarter tiling. I would imagine it would be. Um, the Mate people. Yeah, because I pretty could, good about I that. would definitely want like half tiling, but not quarter tiling. Yeah, personally, for me on my 4K monitor, it's huge to have quarter tiling. I talked about in my video about using Mate. Um, a couple months ago that that was one of the biggest problems I had with using mate was just that they had half tiling but no quarter tiling because when you're on a 4k screen a quarter of your screen is a 1080p window um, so like right now I've got in my top left I've got OBS my bottom left I've got OBS's multi view pop out um, the top right I've got a 1080p window just with Firefox for the show so yeah I, I use this I use quarter tiling on a daily basis and I've actually considered going back to Mate um, sometimes just because I don't need all of the bells and whistles of KDE all the time. Um, and this would make it a lot easier for me to do that. So I personally appreciate that they added quarter window tiling. I think a lot of other people were asking for it as well. Um, so yeah, anything else to add about it? Um, not really. All right. I think I covered basically my yeah. feelings towards it There's already. There's a, but... a new feature. That's, that's it. Yep. A little bit bigger of a change. VLC 3.0 came out the other week as well. Um, and this release has some pretty cool new features. VLC 3.0 has hardware decoding by default, which means we can play 4K and 8K video actually smoothly. Now, Richard, have you ever tried to watch a 4K video in VLC? Um, no, unfortunately without a 4K monitor, it wouldn't be that helpful. <laughs> right, I mean, I, I made some 4K videos when I had a 2K monitor. Um, so oh, okay. like, cause I had a 4k camera. I was like, I'll make 4k videos. I wasn't even watching them in 4k when I was editing, but I noticed even back then that VLC would stutter a really large amount of, of stuttering when I was trying to watch 4k video, but then I would open it up in MPV and it would play perfectly smoothly. That was one of the reasons I switched from VLC to MPV for my main video player. So it's really great that they've got hardware decoding by default because that was the difference that was letting MPV play that video smoothly, whereas VLC was stuttering because it was trying to do it all through software decoding. But you don't need a 4K monitor to appreciate some of these other things. VLC supports 360 degree video. I mean, I don't even have a, a what are those called? Virtual reality headsets with, I yeah. guess you would use with that. But um, I've watched like 360 degree video on YouTube and stuff, even with a normal monitor, it's neat to have yeah, support for that. Yeah, because you can just you can scroll around, use yeah. the arrow keys, yeah. And it's always a pretty cool thing. Or even I've seen like 360 degree photos that people have yeah. posted. Those wide panorama type ones. Um, VLC can now stream to Chromecast devices, uh, which is nice. That I know Chromecast is a Google thing, but it's cool that you can cast to it from VLC. And you can even cast in formats not supported natively by the Chromecast. So maybe like your Android device might not play an AVI file, so it wouldn't be able to cast to Chromecast. And Chromecast itself doesn't have AVI support. Um, I don't know if it actually has AVI support. I'm just using that as like a weird file format as an example. Uh, but VLC has AVI support, so it can do the decoding and then send the video to the Chromecast to play. So that's nice. Do Chromecasts actually do decoding at all? Or do they just... I mean, they still have to get some form of a stream. I they see, have right? to get something because they, yeah, they don't connect directly to devices normally. They're they're kind of weird how they work because it's very cloud centric. But they they have to get the video in somehow. But they don't like store video files, so yeah. So it must be just translating to something the Chromecast understands. Yeah, but this would the idea is this would make your Chromecast more useful 
if like I on macOS maybe you can open up just a random file and click cast to Chromecast um, without even opening it up in any player. But if it's an unsupported file format, it might not work. So VLC, it'll work with pretty much any file format because VLC works with any file format. New VLC also can play back Blu-ray Java menus. Do you know anything about Java menus on Blu-ray? Like, is that no. is that a widely used thing? I don't know. Blu-ray is still kind of iffy on Linux. I, it might, I think it works pretty well on Linux now, but I still avoid it because it used to not work well on Linux. So I don't know a whole lot about that, but VLC- So is that just- for the BD Java codec or format, it's just saying it allows you to have the menus work. Yeah. Um, like either a DVD it'll... menu kind of had. Right. I don't know if... It, yeah, I guess it's just it allows you to use those menus. Um, because I know that is a touchy thing. Even with DVD menus, some DVDs look messed up on computers when they look fine in DVD players. Um, the DVD specification is a mess, and I would imagine the Blu-ray spec is as well, although they're not public. Um, so it's hard to program Which is for probably those. why they're even more of a mess. <laughs> yeah. But VLC supports browsing of local network drives. That's something we can all relate to. Um, <laughs> you can browse within VLC without having to go through a file manager, so that's cool. Um, those are some of the headline features. Some other ones, they have reworked several demuxers, including the MP4 and MKV demuxers, as well as the TS demuxer. Those are all formats that a lot of people use. They now have OpenGL as the default video output for Linux and BSD. Direct3D11, which is part of DirectX11, is now the default on Windows. Uh, there is a new pitch shifting module that you can use um, in real time when you're watching video or audio. And the Android version of VLC, which I have used in the past, also got some love. They've got Chromecast support from your phone now through VLC, which is nice. Um, HEVC, which is H.265 used for like 4K and stuff, hardware decoding for Android. The Android VLC is also available on all Android TV devices and Chromebooks because those things run Android apps. You've got support for picture-in-picture -in, -picture in Android, which is great. And then they can also now use playlist files on Android, which would also be useful. Ooh, so that's a whole lot of new features. Um, Richard, do you use VLC a lot? Or do you use another? No. You don't? Interesting. I don't really use players much at all, actually. <laughs> I'm more likely probably to be watching something on Netflix. So Okay, fair this enough. Is, this is interesting to me, but... <laughs> yeah, like, I've got a crap ton of videos sitting around on my hard drive, and sometimes I just need to open things up. Like, I've still got MPV set as my default video player just because it's it doesn't have as much of a window. Like, it just doesn't have, like, menus and things cluttering up the screen when I don't need them. Um, but when I actually want to, like, watch something at at one-tenth speed or if I want to zoom into a video while I'm watching it, I'll open up VLC because it's a whole lot easier to do those advanced things with VLC than it is with MPV. Um, also, I do use VLC as my primary music player on my phone as well. So, yeah. I was excited about VLC 3.0. I think a lot of people are as well. And that is available at videoland.org or from your distro's repositories, hopefully. I was actually wondering, though, is I've never I don't have a Chromecast, but I was wondering since I, does iOS actually support Chromecast? And if it doesn't, yes. then doesn't that mean VLC would be the only way to use it? Uh, no, iOS does support Chromecast. Um, I know because my dad has a Chromecast and my sister has an iPhone, and she is able to cast to it. So uh, okay, good question though. And Richard, next you're going to talk about a change Ubuntu has proposed for their next version. What is this? So this is from the. Um, 
Ubuntu mailing list. Mm -hmm. And basically, they went to add a checkbox into the installer. And they said they haven't decided on the exact wording for it, but basically it'd be something along the lines of send diagnostics information to help improve Ubuntu. Right. And this on a surface doesn't seem that bad, but they are checking it by default, which to me seems an interesting approach because I always like to have the stuff unchecked by default. Right. It's, and granted, I... granted, people should probably be definitely watching the installers and unchecking things like this. But mm -hmm. I guess before we get too much into that, I want to talk about actually what it'll send. Right. Because it doesn't seem that bad. So basically, they're going to get the information. They will send it over HTTPS to a service run by Canonical. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be saved on your disk when you're in the install phase. And on your first boot, it's going to be sent over the network connection. And some of this includes, the information includes the flavor of Ubuntu you're running, the version, network connectivity or not, which I'm not sure how relevant that would be, but because I feel like the chance of someone having internet when they boot, but not having internet when they install yeah. is not that likely. Well, but, if you've got, um, it used to be more likely with like Wi-Fi drivers that weren't installed until you actually installed the system. Um, but even if you just like don't set up Wi-Fi until after you after you're done installing and then you go and set up Wi-Fi because you're going to have to do it twice anyway um, because it doesn't save your settings from the live session after you reboot. Like, there are legitimate reasons why someone might not when they're installing. Yeah, I do remember when I first started using Ubuntu, that was kind of an issue and you had to, I often, if I wanted to get updates while it was, like, installing, I had to just plug into an Ethernet port. Yeah. So then they're going to have a CPU, family, the RAM, the disk size, the screen or screen resolution, the screen or screens resolution, mm -hmm. the um, vendor and model of your GPU, the OEM manufacturer, the location, which this says is based on location selection. Okay. So based the location on... is based on what they chose at the install, not like based on what it got from Wi-Fi or what it got from the Right. Place. They say specifically the IP. no IP information would be gathered, yeah. And then the installation duration, so how long it took to install, auto login enabled or not, disk layout selected, third-party software selected or not, and then download updates to install, live patch enabled. So that's a lot of things. The other two things they were going to also do is PopCon will be installed by default, mm -hmm. and this is basically for analytics in terms of package usage. Mm -hmm. An app port would be configured to automatically send anonymous crash reports without user interruption. Right. And when they say without user interruption, they mean without actually asking the user whether to send them or not. Right. Right now, when you when an app crashes on Ubuntu, you're supposed to get a pop up that says this app is crashed. Would you like to send a crash report? Yes or no. With this change, it would just send the crash report without even asking. But that's where a lot of the um, information initially that data I didn't have a huge problem with because that's just kind of basic information that would be helpful for developers to kind of see what their target audience is and what they should be supporting. But the app port bit of like automatically sending crash reports seems a little excessive, as well as PopCon being installed, because I was wondering then that it, since if you tell it to disable, it doesn't really imply it'll uninstall PopCon. Right. So, so how this works still remain. Since this is an opt-out system, the in Ubuntu's you know, in the code, this would be on diagnostic data would be on by default. If you want to turn it off, what happens when you uncheck that box is your system adds a post string called diagnostics equals false. So then that's going to be part of your post string, which you can edit through grub. Um, every single time your system boots, it'll diagnostics equals false will be part of that string at the bottom of your screen. But if that gets removed, if you're if you don't have diagnostics equals true or diagnostics equals false or you just don't have anything, it's going to default to true with this system. 
Um, so when you uncheck this box in the installer or in GNOME settings and it adds that string diagnostic equals false, is it also going to uninstall PopCon? Um, is it also going to set Appwort to not send things by default? That's what we're not sure of. And they'll probably answer those questions um, if people ask them. Yeah, so I mean, overall, this doesn't seem that bad. Also, one of the key things is they'll make this information public. And yeah. I feel like if they're going to collect this, they should make it public because it's really helpful for developers then to know what they're targeting and what um, people have overall who use Ubuntu. Yeah. I mean, kind of just like how Steam gathered this information, I'm pretty sure they made it, they did make it public, I believe. Like you can Right, see but Steam asks Steam you, hey, do you want to send this in every month or so? Yeah. Um, which I'm sure if Ubuntu did that, plenty of people would opt in. Sure, plenty of people would also not opt in if it was opt in. But yeah, they do reiterate the service would never store the IP addresses that the information is coming from. I just think, did you have anything else you wanted to say about this? Um, not that I can think of so far, so you can continue. Okay, I, I just think it's kind of setting a bad precedent in the direction that they're moving doing this. Um, because we all know, I mean, you've have you installed Windows 10 like from, from a install yeah. disk? There are like 10 checkboxes you have to disable all of them um, if you don't want telemetry. And then it doesn't even disable telemetry entirely. It's just like reduced telemetry when you uncheck all of the boxes. And then you install yeah. a Windows 10 update later and it rechecks them. Um, I recently updated from Windows 7 to Windows 10. And uh, basically I had to uncheck everything. Yeah. And then there was this compatibility thing that was running in the background telemetry. It started using up like, I think 50% of my disk is what it was saying. And like a good twenty percent of my CPU, yeah, and it was just running in the background. It's like I unchecked everything in the installer, so yeah, it's just it was still there running. And not only was it, I don't know what it was actually sending, but it certainly was taking a ridiculous amount of my hardware, like my computing power, yeah, for like no <laughs> tangible benefit to me. And I don't see what the point was. I finally just terminated the task and it went away. Right, but. Um, so yeah, for now, this is one checkbox in the installer and you have the option to uncheck it to completely disable sending these things in. I did highlight the data that I'm most concerned about, like Ubuntu flavor, Ubuntu version, that stuff is like legitimate. I mean, Ubuntu version, they can kind of tell by how many people are pinging their repos anyway. Um, Ubuntu flavor, that that's perfectly fair. If they want to know if what desktop environment you're using, maybe if everyone starts using Kubuntu and stops using Ubuntu, then they'll switch their default to KDE. Like that's perfectly normal stuff to want to collect. Um, network connectivity or not, they say they're not collecting IP addresses. They make a big deal about how they're not collecting IP addresses, but your IP address will be sent to them and you're trusting because that's how the internet works. It's going to be in yes. the source field of your of your IP packets, and you're trusting them to discard that information and not save it. Which the the idea behind open source is that you don't have to trust them. They are including CPU family, which could possibly tell people information about what vulnerabilities like Meltdown or Spectre you are vulnerable to. They are including screen resolution, which is a common fingerprinting technique in web browsers as screen resolution, so that could possibly be combined with other sources to profile people. Location, like I said, they, they say that it's based on the selection made by the user. Um, I installed Solus Linux on a few laptops recently, and Solus has added the option to their installer to automatically find your location using your IP address. And I used the option when I was installing because I didn't want to go through and manually select the location. 
but I mean, I can find a pretty accurate location, by the way, not just what. They... Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, if you had the option, Wi-Fi access points. If you had the option in the Ubuntu installer to either go through the three slides for like select your keyboard layout, select your language, select your time zone, or you can skip those three by just clicking one button to do it all automatically. Which would you pick? The one button to do everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I already let it always auto detect the keyboard because I'm like, that's right. Not... I don't um, need to go through 20 menus to say I'm U.S. Yeah. English. So that is connected to the IP thing, and I feel like that's a slippery slope that they might start collecting IPs eventually. Installation. Or worse, like the location um, with Wi-Fi, you can with Wi-Fi you can use the location from the access points from like the Google databases, and you can get basically GPS coordinates. Yeah. That can be often within. I mean, usually within your access point in Wi-Fi, you're usually not that far from the access point you're at. Right. So there'd be and right, right now they're not going to be like the Solus installer isn't saving that data. It's it's not using it for anything because they don't have a use for that right now. Um, but it's just another example of how this will eventually be connected to IP addresses. I thought it was interesting the installation duration, like the time it takes to install. I'm not sure exactly. I guess it's sort of useful to know how long it's taking. I'm not actually concerned about that one. That's kind of like the Ubuntu flavor and Ubuntu version. Like I can see a legitimate. They want to see how long it takes. Um, live patch enabled or not is an interesting one because that is sort of a canonical only technology. Like Red Hat and people have their alternatives to it, but live patch specifically is an, a canonical branded thing that they want people to have enabled. Um, because they want to be able to patch your kernel without you doing anything. They want to be able to automatically push patches without prompting you and without having you reboot. They want to change your running kernel. That's what Live Patch does. And right now it's just telling them whether it's enabled or not. Maybe in a few years it'll start nagging you to enable it if it's disabled. Um, the fact that they're collecting that information, it like I said, it just reminds me sort of how... Um, you know, Windows used to send information to Microsoft about whether you have Windows Update enabled or not, and now you can't really disable Windows Update. Um, oh, yeah. So, Which was a serious problem for me for a while, but yeah, um, I finally resolved that. PopCon is an interesting one because that is an, that's a package you could install today if you wanted to. And I think there used to even be a prompt in the installer um, I think actually it's the Debian installer. If you install Debian, they've actually got a prompt that says, hey, do you want to install PopCon to let us know what packages you're using? Uh, but once again, that's opt-in rather than opt-out. Um, personally, I'm against this. I think that any data we could have from it, like Richard, you mentioned it would be useful to developers. I still feel like developers are going to say there's not enough Linux users anyway. Like there's still going to be those developers that don't want to support Linux. There's still going to be, obviously... Right now, Ubuntu is already the most popular target platform on Linux specifically, um, so it's not like they need to prove their market share to developers who are already making things for Linux. Yeah, I was more focusing on the like open source developers that might be helpful for seeing what the average person in the, in the Ubuntu or Linux community is using in terms of, say, screen resolution or in terms of CPU or RAM, like what the average spec is so that yeah. we know, okay... We have kind of a high end that we can't, we shouldn't exceed this if we're trying to make an application. Yeah, that's But fair. I do, the main fear I have is certainly with the opt-out 
in that this is something that you have to like specifically opt out of as opposed to opting in because I, I always let like steam send the information like i just quickly review what it says in the file what it's going to send and you should just click yes send that and then i often just out of curiosity go and review the public thing but as you're pointing out that's very different from having to specifically click something to not send the information Right. Like if something just, if you disable this and you've got that diagnostics equals false and then you install a grub update and it wipes that out of your post settings, then you've got it true again. You didn't click anything to enable it. Um, I also think it's interesting that there's a, going to be a corresponding checkbox in the privacy panel of the GNOME settings to control this post, this this UEFI slash BIOS. Or mm -hmm. it, it not, it's not that high level actually, but or that low level. Um, but it's controlling this thing in the bootloader through GNOME, which GNOME normally, your desktop environment does not interact with your bootloader ordinarily. Um, so how is this yeah. going to work in other desktop environments? Are they going to send pull requests to KDE and to XFCE and Mate and add this checkbox to all of their setting centers? Um, are they just going to say, hey, desktop environments, here's the endpoint you can, you know, here's an API you can use to disable telemetry or what the diagnostics they call it. I'm interested in how that's going to work with other desktop environments and because it, it says Ubuntu flavors so they're clearly planning on rolling this out in all of their flavors otherwise sending in the flavor would the have no purpose yeah. right so yeah personally I'm against it at the same time though like Microsoft is collecting this data no matter what you do Apple probably is too um, so it might help Linux conceivably if we could have a company like Canonical go to developers and say, look, Adobe, we've got so many million users, it would be worth it to port Photoshop to Linux. Like that kind of thing, because Microsoft has those numbers, Apple has those numbers. Linux companies don't really have those numbers. Um, they just rely on the Linux community to make themselves heard. But like I said, I'm not sure if this would actually convince any developers who aren't already developing for Linux to develop for Linux. Um, especially because a lot of people are going to disable them anyway, so it's not even going to be all-encompassing. But yeah, that's that's all my thoughts on it. Do you have anything else for that one? Um, not really. I, I pretty much mostly agree with you, particularly when it comes to the requiring to opt out, or requiring to opt in as opposed to opt out. But Alright, uh, well, that's all of the big stories we had for this week. We did have one other thing. As you all may know, this show here, Rolling Release, is sort of a spinoff, or uh, it's inspired by the Linux Action Show that was discontinued last year. And the Linux Action Show used to have a segment called Runs Linux, where they would show things that they found out in the wild, or that the audience sent in, that they found out and about that were running Linux, that normally you wouldn't think would be running Linux. Um, somebody sent out a tweet, and it was on the top of the r slash Linux subreddit was where I found it, but they were running KDE Plasma on their Nintendo Switch. Richard, have you heard anything about this uh, this trend of running Linux on Nintendo Switches? No, but yeah, I saw the tweet. It looked pretty interesting. Yeah. Because like, so I thought it was cool they were running KDE too, not just right. like regular Linux. Not yeah. just another desktop distro what happened was because often people say that kde is like more heavyweight and they clearly can run on a switch oh, yeah. though well yeah and like without any lag or performance input issues and it works yeah fairly well with the touch screen and a little bit they're gonna demo the um the touch keyboard um so what happened was some some researchers found a bootloader flaw in the nintendo switch that allowed them to run any operating system they wanted so they put linux on it and they just put like a command line on it a, a terminal 
just to show that they could. Then this guy saw that. He said, I can do you one better. And he actually put KDE. And here you can see him in KDE responding to the original tweet um, that you can see in there. So that's what was going on here. This is actually a security flaw technically allowing him to do this. Uh, but it's still pretty neat. Yeah, like Richard said, it's it's interesting how well it runs. So that's and the just, brightness controls too. That's interesting. Yeah. Like right out of the box. I don't know if that was right out of the box or if you had to do some configuration, but be able to control the screen brightness as well. Yeah. Because I imagine no one wrote switch drivers. <laughs> Right. For, like, the display. I've heard that the Switch is similar to the NVIDIA, or it uses Tegra chips. Um, so it's using the NoView driver, actually. I know that. I read that. Um, so not the NVIDIA proprietary driver, but that free and open one that's completely unofficially developed. That's the one that this one's using. Um, so, yeah, well, I'll link a couple of pages about this um, down in the show notes if you want to go and read more about that. Just get some more Linux in your your day and hey richard if people want to find you before our next episode where can they go for that um glorif22 on twitter or either of my sites latramedia.com or minecraftmedia.net all right and you can find me as always at nerdonthestreet.com we've also got the discord channel at discord.nots.co it's up on the screen right now we are currently recording in a room there so head on over to discord.nots.co if you want to talk to us uh, just throughout the week about um, Linux and free and open software. I will certainly software. try and respond if anyone mentions <laughs> me, but I may not yeah. see it if, not meant, if I'm not mentioned. Right. Cool. So that's everything we have this way for you guys. Let us know what you think down in the comments about all these stories, and we'll see you all next time. I'm Jacob Kaufman. And I'm Richard Bimmer. Keep using Linux, everyone.